We acknowledge First Nations peoples as the traditional custodians of the land on which we work in Australia. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the youth who are working towards a brighter tomorrow. Hello and welcome to Ashurst Business Agenda. My name is Dan Brown and I'm a partner in the energy and infrastructure team in Brisbane's office of Ashurst. This is the second episode in our Road to Brisbane series where we explore the 2032 Brisbane Olympics, which is forecast to deliver immense commercial, social, cultural and community benefits to the state of Queensland. In today's conversation, we'll focus on the critical role of First Nations people and ensuring we deliver a truly diverse and deeply meaningful legacy from our games for everyone. I'm really excited that joining me today for our yarn is Trent Wallace. Trent's a Wongabong man, and he grew up on dark and young country. He's our First Nations advisor here at Ashurst. He's also a law lecturer, a writer, and a lawyer. Here's our conversation. Trent, it's so great to have you here today. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Dan, for having me. Trent, I'd really love to start at the start, so to speak, and really understand how a proud Wongabon man finds himself in a global law firm like Ashurst. What's your story? I grew up on dark and young country. I came to the law later in life. as was my mother's carer whilst I was studying at university. So I was able to pursue uh, my dream, which was studying law. I then uh, started my career at the Central Coast Community Legal Centre. I went to Australian Government Solicitor. I felt very fortunate to be picked up and as part of their um, program, I was put on a pro bono secondment to the Australian Pro Bono Centre where I was introduced to a wide array of firms that were doing um, beautiful pro bono work and social impact work and I had met Sarah Morton Ramwell through that, who is the partner and global head of pro bono and social impact. And I was very fortunate as Sarah was probably my favorite pro bono partner that I got to meet out of all of them. Sorry, everyone else, if you're listening. Uh, Sarah was just incredible. She kind of matched the energy and enthusiasm and love for uh, exclamation marks in emails like I do. So we really echoed each other's energy. That's incredible. Um, and I guess, this seems like an obvious question, but perhaps it isn't. Why does a firm like Ashurst, our, our, our home, have a role for, for you or for someone as a First Nations advisor? Like what's, what's the, the reason behind that? You know, Sarah Morton Ramwell is a visionary in many ways and she crafted this role after a meeting with me. You know, we met for a coffee to kind of catch up and have a bit of a yarn. Sarah offered me the opportunity as she'd seen my work and seen what I was able to do with the Australian Pro Bono Centre. She saw the work that I did with the University of New South Wales Practical Legal Training Program and knew that I was also a solicitor on the Disability Royal Commission. Sarah's ingenuity allowed for this vision to kind of be crafted this First Nations role. And why does a global firm need a First Nations person, you know, First Nations advisor, First Nations person to lead this? It goes to one, the authenticity, Ashurst has worked in the First Nations space for some 50 years with the creation of the Aboriginal uh, legal service in the 1970s. So that was really interesting, you know, 50 years later coming back as an Aboriginal person to 
kind of lead the work, an Aboriginal lawyer leading the work, you know, it was really incredible. But um, realistically, it's one to add that authentic First Nations voice. You know, if you walk the walk, you talk the talk. And secondly, there's that commercial aspect. So I'm housed in the pro bono and social impact teams. However, I work across the firm, both internally and externally, and I'm often yarning with our commercial clients about our First Nations initiatives, where we can do better, what we can do to improve. And I'm always looking for ways in which to embed First Nations work. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. And what, what I really love about that is that notwithstanding that the one of the broader purposes of our business is to serve our clients, serve our colleagues, um, serve our communities, um, we can only do that authentically, as you say, if we actually are engaging in the right way with everybody in each of those places, and in particular, our First Nations peoples. And, and I guess that's probably a really beautiful segue into the theme of these podcasts, which is the Brisbane 30, 2032 Olympics. Now, um, there's under 4,000 days to go until we get to the Olympics. Um, and I've said it before, it, it seems like a long time, but in fact, it's not given the scale and magnitude of everything that needs to be done by that time. Um, and again, I think this is probably an obvious or rhetorical question, but what role, if any, do the First Nations people have in delivering the Olympics, in, in, in making the Olympics in Brisbane come to fruition? Realistically, when I kind of look around at the First Nations work, particularly within our firm and how our clients are progressing, they're recognising their obligations uh, to the unique landscape in which they're operating, which is, you know, Australia. I'm seeing opportunities arise more and more for First Nations involvement and First Nations thought leadership. So the role that First Nations peoples can play in this Olympics in under 4,000 days is a wide variety of things, whether it be First Nations tourism, whether it be First Nations catering, whether it be First Nations logo design, whether it be First Nations, you know, welcome to country, acknowledgement of country being delivered. I think what Australia seems to forget is that this country is stolen. We are all operating on stolen land and we need to really observe that. And how do we... How do we kind of uh, right those wrongs that have been done and the hangover of discriminatory le legislation? Well, it's through that embedding of First Nations voices and thought leadership. We can do that through employing them throughout businesses. You know, I look at the huge economic opportunity for growth in First Nations communities. And how do we fit into that? Ashurst can deliver pro bono and social impact services, which will be supported throughout the firm to create that economic prosperity piece, whether it's helping businesses start up and set up, it's under 4,000 days when we look at business returns and how long it takes to start to create a bit of an impact and funding, et cetera, et cetera. We need this time now. We need to start acting now. We need to start acting yesterday in order to set these businesses up and look at opportunities for First Nations businesses to be utilised. Yeah, that's, that's a really incredible insight because... Um, there's there's a whole raft there's clearly a whole raft of opportunities to more closely and appropriately engage with first nations peoples in order to deliver these olympics um, but I, I wouldn't mind just taking one step back for a moment and probably looking at this through a more macro lens and saying 
yes, there's a whole bunch of opportunities that you described, and they're all really important and in, uh, integral. But when we look at this um, at the highest level, what do you feel the legacy of these games should be? And, and the reason I ask this is because in previous podcasts, we've spoken about the importance of legacy. And it's not about just creating something that's going to last for the sort of two to four weeks of the Olympic and Paralympic Games. But we have an opportunity right now to come together, to listen to all voices and to really create a legacy that will endure for all time. And so when I look at that through the lens of the Olympics and as, as a whole, which ultimately, in my view, is um, for the people, by the people, um, when, we, when we really just simplify it down, right? People, 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 as Brene Brown says, and that's really what the Olympics are about, bringing together of people. Um, what would the legacy or what could or should the legacy be for First Nations people um, arising out of our 2032 Olympics here in Brisbane? 2032 and the legacy. You know, in my short time since joining the firm, uh, which was in 2020, or as I called it, the year of 2020, which soon uh, headed down a very different <laughs> route than I'd planned. Um, I've built these tremendous kind of working relationships. And I feel like Ashurst is part of my home and Ashurst people are part of my family. So, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Ben Tidswell, who's now departed, and Paul Jenkins, uh, you know, Jamie Ung, Leah Constantine, uh, Jenny Mansfield, Sarah Ross Smith, and these are partners across all different offices, including yourself now, Dan. So it's really heartwarming to see internally the community of care and the sphere of influence that I've built in the partnership of Ashurst. And then I go down to the various other stratas at play, whether it be events and, you know, um, gosh, catering, HR, all of that, that internal building, internal building that sphere of influence will then illuminate what we can do to achieve in the First Nations arena external to us. And so when we look at that, we look at the legacy. It's, it's beyond that. It's the relationship building. It's the capacity building that we have the opportunity to create and shape what goes out there. So Ashurst has a huge role to play in building that legacy because then we go to advise our clients on this key First Nations work. And we are building relationships between First Nations communities and the commercial setting. So I look at myself as a bit of a conduit, bridging the gaps between the legal profession and First Nations peoples, which we know so widely exists. So for me, it's about that First, building that internal peace, internal community of care, activating that community of care so that we can illuminate what is achievable for First Nations peoples and what does that legacy look like? Employment, economic prosperity, that financial stability. Because when we look at home ownership for First Nations peoples, when we look at uh, financial literacy and other programs, we're really seeing sorely lacking program there. So our, by activating our internal community of care to illuminate the legacy for First Nations peoples is assisting in that work. And what can we do for First Nations peoples? A wide variety of things. But we need to set the foundation to be solid. It's less than 4,000 days. The legacy building started, as I said, you know, yesterday, realistically, um, and upon the announcement of it. So for First Nations peoples, we will draw our own lens from it. We will draw our own 
learnings and lessons, but we have the opportunity to do this correctly. And if we do it correctly, the legacy will be different. But if we don't do it correctly, if we don't engage our First Nations peoples, if our community of care and sphere of influence isn't activated appropriately, then there will be no legacy. And we can look to the you know, 2000 Olympics and we have to move beyond acknowledgement of countries and we have to move beyond that and do the actual work in order for a legacy to be formed. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point, actually. Um, when we look back to 2000 Olympics, arguably, in, at least in the minds of many, the single greatest Olympics, <laughs> modern Olympics ever. Um, again, when we look at it through the lens of a First Nations people and their legacy, I feel like Kathy Freeman um, had the weight, not just of the First Nations people, but a country <laughs> on her shoulders. And what she achieved um, was incredible. And I'm also mindful to be careful about how I characterize that because I was reading something recently to say, if we say these feats by um, particular individuals, including First Nations people are incredible, what it does is it undermines the hours and hours and hours of hard work and planning and all of the preparation that goes into achieving what they did. But, but for Kathy, I think that was really important um, for us as a nation, but also for the First Nations people. I look at the amazing work that Rhoda Roberts did in relation to curating a lot of the arts and cultural pieces, not just in the opening ceremony and that, that really beautiful um, segment around awakening, but more broadly in, in the curation of the art space that was tied with the Olympics. Um, I look at the work that was done with um, Mrs. Isabel Coe um, of the Tent Embassy and her role as an advisor in relation to setting up the, you know, the engagement of First Nations people in Sydney Olympics. And we kind of see this compounding effect of really well thought out engagement from a First Nations people's perspective. And yet, um, with my limited understanding, and I'd be really grateful for your views on this, I feel like the promise of that legacy is potentially diminished in some way. Like the, the, the light that shone so bright in 2000 perhaps isn't quite as bright in relation to that First Nations people's legacy. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Trent? Dan, it's really interesting that you kind of bring up these deadly um, matriarchs, these deadly women that we speak of. I find it so interesting, particularly in relation to uh, First Nations peoples that, you know, are successful athletes or actresses, et cetera, et cetera. They're often described as our Australian and this Australian woman. But when the failures come, it's the Aboriginal person. There's never that ownership of uh, First Nations identity or it's sorely lacking, particularly within different mediums. The recognition of Cathy Freeman and the historic battles she won and things that she conquered to get to where she was um, is you can't deny the oppression and the layers of oppression that Kathy had to conquer to get to where she was and the, the racism and the booing and all of that. You know, I, I speak to Adam Goodwin, I refer to that quite recently. And when they do wrong, they're Aboriginal. When they do right, they're Australian. And I think it's really right. It, I think it's, it'd be remiss of me to kind of not acknowledge that. When I look to the 2000 Olympics and the people that you speak of and the tremendous work that they undertook and building that bridge between First Nations communities and non-First Nations peoples, you know, when I look at that bridge that they built, 
it all seems very worn and torn now in 2021. It seems very bittersweet in a way because there is so much that we could take from that beautiful legacy there. But then again, it may appear as tokenism because as we pass the baton, what's left of that, what's left of that legacy where we really could have bridged that gap and actually continued on that momentum, continued on that, that path of First Nations involvement and decision-making and skills and all of that operation. And now when you look back, it's, you know, 2021 and then 2032, what's left and what can we learn from that? It's about embedding First Nations peoples and work as business as usual acknowledging the past, receiving the truth. We've been telling the truth for over 250 years now. We've always told the truth. It's about non-First Nations peoples receiving the truth. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really good segue into acknowledging that things can be done in a different way. But also I'd be keen to get your thoughts on reflections around other countries that have strong ties in a business as usual sense to their First Nations peoples, acknowledging the past and receiving the truth. And and I know in our previous conversations, you've looked across the ditch, so to speak, at our our brothers and sisters in New Zealand. I mean, what, what is it about the New Zealand approach that really appeals to you from a First Nations perspective? And maybe describe some of the elements to that business as usual approach that that might be relevant here. Yeah, Dan, that's really interesting. You know, I know we've yarned about this in the past informally um, from our last discussion. For me, seeing New Zealand incorporate the principles of the Māori people in the airport, even that acknowledgement in the airport when you when you land, you come through those doors, and I haven't been there, but I've been told about it. The description, you know, seeing Tao Māori. Taupakia, that blending of two worlds, you know, walking in both of those worlds, the, the Māori world and, you know, the Pākehā world. It's really interesting and some of the principles that have embedded, you know, they've had senior, but, uh, you know, senior leadership within the Māori um, peoples. They've had senior leadership across government. They've had uh, representation. It's kind of embedded. Um, I note, you know, there's one particular senior minister and I, my name, her name has... Um, escaped my mind, but she has traditional tattooing on her face to signify her Māori culture and to signify her place in in Māori society. So I find that really interesting, whereas in Australia, we're still a little bit lagging because of the various, you know, language dialects and the language that have been stolen and lost. For example, my great-grandmother was not allowed to speak language. It's kind of beaten out of her. So therefore, that means I've lost that opportunity. My father, my grandfather have lost that opportunity. Whereas I look at the Māori culture and the language, you know, and the principles, you know, as I again refer to Te Māori, Te Pākehā, looking at your mana, which is kind of like, as I've been explained, your spirit, your soul, having a look at that and examining that. The jewellery pieces, the pieces of jade and, and intricate carvings. First Nations artwork is kind of in the minds of most Australians, I think it's dot painting and, and a boomerang. You know, it's that, it's that really uh, one vision, single, single narrative, single look uh, to First Nations peoples, and we need to really widen our diversity lens there. 
and see what we can come up with. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important piece. And um, one of the other aspects that I think around the New Zealand culture that I really love and I think is relevant in the context of the games, but I've just finished reading James Kerr's book called Legacy. And James Kerr was fortunate enough to spend a bit of time with the All Blacks. And effectively, he he's written a book that underpins the 15 core values that really drive what has been the most successful rugby union team in, in the history of rugby union. One of the things that really came to the fore for me in reading that book is that so deeply in, uh, interwoven into the DNA of rugby union in New Zealand, not just within the All Blacks, but within rugby union more broadly, is the connection with the Maori culture. Um, and so each and every one of those 15 principles that guide the, the cohesion and the culture in the All Blacks is underpinned by its own piece of Maori culture that really is, resonates what that particular um, value is. And, and so, I, you know, that's another example I feel of how it's, as you, to use your terms, business as usual, that that culture is being brought into every aspect of every day um, for all people within that community. And when I fast forward to the 2032 Olympics, given all of the momentum and all of the focus on really delivering these games, surely there has to be an opportunity for us to be able to bring that beautiful, rich culture of our First Nations people to the fore, to set that legacy, so to speak, for it to be business as usual, again, to use that phrase, or to be interwoven into our DNA, so that we don't find ourselves in a position like we have with Sydney in some respects, where that beautiful light um, of diversity and inclusion has dimmed, if only a little, because we've lost that momentum and those things didn't actually form part of or ingrained in our in our DNA. Um, I mean, do you think that's something that is possible, Trent? You know, I, I, I yarn a lot to colleagues, to friends, to family. And I think one thing that we really need to harness are the wide diversity of cultural offerings that we can provide. Australia, I need it to be more than, and I'm not knocking in, but John Farnham or Daryl Braithwaite's horses, you know, is almost like the unofficial anthem. Um, and then I look at, you know, the, the mud cake, the $6 mud cake uh, for birthday parties, you know, is there any way in which we can kind of embed First Nations cultures, you know, uh, Yothu Yindi's Treaty, you know, for example, that song that gained so much momentum. What I've noticed is that in particular, we gain so much momentum, First Nations peoples, we gain so much momentum in one particular area, such as popularity within Treaty, um, that song. And then uh, Lemon Myrtle, or um, kind of the, to reference the 2000 Olympics, the community engagement piece. We get so close to cinching the deal in terms of embedding it as usual. We get so close. And then for some reason, it just stops. You know, Treaty falls out of the charts. The Lemon Myrtles rolled out during National Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week and those palatable morning teas. And all of a sudden, the, the dominant paradigm kind of comes back into play. You know, we start hearing the horses by Daryl Braithwaite playing in the background and You're the Voice by John Farnham. It all, the dominant paradigm and the dominant shift towards that just starts to flow back in. I think it's about stopping that flow to that 
norm approach is you know this is the dominant this is the dominant culture the dominant Australian Aussie you know um Paul Hogan who's hilarious you know was hilarious and all of that you know all of that kind of shift towards that it's it all it all just goes back to the norm whereas we need to embed First Nations where it needs to be continual that's my my role is so pivotal in a global law firm because it's I'm like hang on a minute how about the First Nations perspective hang on a minute what about we get this done in the First Nations perspective when you look at the elements of disability and or look at um, business prosperity or, or whatever um, I find it really interesting Dan I'm sorry I've gone off on a bit of a tangent but I think about <laughs> I think about all those things how it just goes back to the you know and I feel I'm not well I'm not um, bullying good old John Farnham but um, you know there are so many deadly First Nations musicians you know who've really done so much incredible work but it just comes back to the vision of uh, John Farnham and that uh, blonde mullet that he rocked. <laughs> yeah absolutely um, and, and it's interesting too like mentioning Paul Hogan and the success that he had but also um, the portrayal of First Nations Australians or people sorry in those movies is dramatized and I imagine completely inauthentic in many respects yeah which just perpetuates this issue that you're raising oh absolutely it 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 perpetuates this um this really flogged and exhausted trope of first nations identity in australia there's a lack of recognition on the worldwide platform you know i remember staying um i was at the intercontinental when oprah was there and her guests and I had these African-Americans and these other American people coming up saying, oh, will I, will if I go over the Harbour Bridge, will I, and this is a really bad accent, I, this is why I'm a lawyer and not an acting, <laughs> if I go over the Harbour Bridge, will I see kangaroos? It's like, what do you think Australia is? And then when you talk about Aboriginal people, it's this like, what? Oh, yeah, from that movie, Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. You don't look Aboriginal though, and it's you know, and there are so many exhausted tropes that we need to really just get rid of. It's so boring. It's so boring, Dan. I can't. I can't. Um, it, it, I, I can't put into words how exhausting it is being Aboriginal in this country, and the yeah. continual learning piece. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's actually a really important piece, and I think it ties in nicely with what we're discussing here about this legacy. And the reason my brain goes to this point is this. Um, what's clear from our conversation, at least for me, is that it's been very challenging to date to really embed First Nation people's culture and awareness into the fabric of our society, right? Our, our broader society. If we aren't able to do that, how are we expecting that those people that live outside of Australia are able to have an understanding, a true authentic understanding of our First Nations peoples? And so it doesn't surprise me that those beliefs or views around our First Nations peoples are held by people that sit outside of Australia because we really have struggled to, to create that authentic connection um, and embed them, embed all people into our society, particularly the First Nations people. And um, look, I'll put my hand up in, in the most vulnerable of sense and give a really good example of what you're talking about, which is um, when we were preparing for our podcast today um, and when we were talking about how we should run the introduction and the outro, um, I didn't even consider having an acknowledgement of country, you know, and I feel like I'm a relatively open-minded person. And yet um, there's a long way to go, right? Because those things should 
be done without even thinking, I imagine, right? If that's the, the legacy and the, the place that we ultimately want to be. Um, and so it seems like there is a tremendous amount of work to be done. And so I guess just coming back to the promise of the Olympics here in, in Queensland for a moment, and, and maybe this is a good way to, to tie things up. When I look at some of the reporting and some of the economic analysis that's been done around the benefit of the Olympics, and, and one of the big four um, accounting firms has done a really great report on the, the economic analysis around the Brisbane 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. One of the key findings is, is absolutely mind-blowing from my perspective. They say that the quantifiable economic and social benefits are estimated to be at least $8.10 billion for Queensland and $17.6 billion for Australia. Those numbers are massive, right? So if amongst that, those billions and billions of dollars for the state of Queensland and for Australia as a whole, what's the first step to utilizing some or all of that commercial benefit that's being driven from the games? What's the first step in us bridging the gap or more closely weaving First Nations people and their beautiful and important culture into our DNA so that that legacy endures far longer or for, for eternity rather than it becoming a discussion point at the next Olympics? It's really interesting, Dan. I really want to take first the time out to thank you and acknowledge that vulnerability, that place of vulnerability you've come from. In, in just that yarning then about the acknowledgement of country. It's that vulnerability that we can lean into. I think Brene Brown yarns a lot about vulnerability. I think we can lean into that vulnerable place. And instead of coming from a place of that vulnerability and apologizing, we can come from a place of, this is my opportunity to learn, to grow and to embed. And I find that that's a key opportunity that we all have to grow, to learn and to, to come together as one, which is what I really dream of. I, I work so hard in this role day in, day out. My, um, you know, I hardly get any sleep some weeks because of what goes on. But I lean into the vulnerabilities and opportunities of people like yourself, you know, business owners at Ashurst and leaning into those opportunities to develop and accentuate knowledge and fill in any gaps wherever possible. When I hear those billions of dollars, um, you know, I, I think to some of our prominent business figures in Australia, you know, the likes of, you know, the, the, the late Kerry Packer, um, whom my uh, former boss, John Corker, actually cross-examined once upon a time. I, I, I look at the empires these people were able to build off generational wealth um, from Sir Frank Packer, people like that, you know, going, going back um, and growing uh, the fortune via that generational wealth piece. I think about the billions of dollars that you mentioned in the economy that we'll be putting into that, the billions of dollars that goes into not only Australia, but Queensland. And how do we share that wealth? Because when we look at the accumulative wealth of this nation, it's not very shared amongst First Nations peoples. I ask you to identify any First Nations billionaires that you know or any First Nations peoples, you know, give me 10 First Nations peoples who have property portfolios amassing to over $50 million worth. We don't really have any answers to that. And there is 
there is the hangover of legislation and oppressive regimes that were in place for First Nations peoples that allowed for a lack of generational wealth to accrue. We've got 2032. We've got a few years, less than 4,000 days, to ensure that we can start up businesses, First Nations businesses, and access the ones that already exist, of which there are plenty. When you look out there, there really are plenty of First Nations businesses, but they're nowhere near the realms of billionaires. We really need to look at that and accessing that. And how do we share that wealth? By sharing opportunities, by sharing growth, by sharing the pathways of growth. And if we invest a certain amount of finances into First Nations businesses, First Nations education, First Nations disability efforts, all of that, we can create that wealth and we can start to overcome those gaps of which there are plenty. And I hope in my lifetime, because I'm very young, Dan, can't you tell? Um, <laughs> I, I hope and pray in my lifetime that I see the First Nations partners in businesses like Ashurst and I see First Nations leadership outside of First Nations businesses, um, you know, outside of that role that we exist outside of our, our cultural identity. But we really must grow together. We must share together. And First Nations knowledge must be paid for adequately. And it's not just having a casual yarn. Oh, let's get your idea on this. No, this, that's a consultancy and that's a fee attached to that. So we really need to pay our First Nations expertise in the right way as we would someone with a PhD, as we would someone with 30 years experience as a partner in a law firm. We really need to start paying First Nations expertise for what it's really worth to create and shift that change that we need. Yeah, that's incredible. And if I think about a single theme that perhaps ties that together, if I've understood you correctly, for me, what I hear is that quite simply, it's about acknowledging value, the value of our First Nations people, which when we say it out loud, um, it, I find a little interesting <laughs> because it's, it goes without saying, but it's really about appropriately valuing our First Nations people and their voices and their experiences and their journeys and their hopes and aspirations. And look, Trent, this has been an absolute pleasure, like genuinely an absolute pleasure. And I really just want to say um, a heartfelt thank you for sharing this opportunity with me, for allowing me to be vulnerable, but also for you <laughs> being courageous and vulnerable to help us and our listeners to grow to learn and to embed this knowledge so that we can come together as one and that we as a community can ensure that we build a beautiful, endearing legacy for our 2032 Olympics. So thank you so much for your time today, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for the vulnerable yarn. Thank you for highlighting what I would really love. And I'm with Ashurst, you know, as the first and only person in this role in a global law firm that's got my skills I am so grateful to be with this firm and I chose this firm because of the people, because of our legacy as a firm, but because I believe in what Australia can achieve. I truly believe that we can and will do better in the future. So thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ashurst Business Agenda. We really do hope that you found this episode both worthwhile and insightful. To learn more about our podcast channels, please visit our home on the web, ashurst.com 
forward slash podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss future episodes, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. And look, while you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or a review. Your feedback is so incredibly important to us and it helps us to shape content that is both valuable and relevant for you. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Business Agenda, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Legal Outlook explains the emerging legal trends and requirements of our fast-changing world. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Legal Outlook and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.